Uh, Let's go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. The title of this sermon is The Lineage of the Savior. And if you are physically able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And here is what the word of God says. It says, these are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered a parshad. I always get that, a parshad. Two years after the flood. After he fathered a parshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. A parshad, forget it, lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, he lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. And after he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and fathered Serug. After he fathered Serug, Reu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. After he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So, this is the word of God. Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just come before you tonight, and we ask you to be with us as we dive into your word. It's a genealogy, and uh, a lot of people are scared of these. They don't know what to do with them, but Lord, there's so much to this. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that we would see it, that we would understand it, that we would be changed by it. I pray, Lord, you would remove me as much as possible so that, that I can't mess this up. You know, I'm a unworthy vessel, Lord, but I pray that you would use me nevertheless. And uh, just that, again, what is said here tonight is true and explains your word, and that uh, you would um, just sanctify your saints um, through your word, and that if there's anybody here who does not know you, Lord, that you would speak to them and breathe that new life into them, and that they would come to know you and be saved. We pray in, in everything, God, that you get all the glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, please have a seat. Now, back in Genesis 5, which was some time ago, I told you then that Luke chapter 24, verse 27, tells us that all the scriptures in some way are about the Lord Jesus. And that means even a text like ours tonight is ultimately about Jesus. Now, sometimes Christians are skeptical of this. You might be thinking, how in the world can this genealogy that we just read, how could that be about Christ? How does this point to him? And simply put, the reason God put this genealogy in Genesis chapter 11 is the same reason that he put a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. He did so to show us the lineage of the Savior. So yes, it is all about Jesus. And like the other genealogy, This one is going to contain some foundational worldview issues. 
<clears throat> and I believe by the end, you're going to see that even a genealogy like this is rich with theology. It's rich with important truths that God wants us to know. And so I will cover these things as we go through it. But ultimately, I want us to understand the main point of this text and its place within the scripture as a whole. So with that all in mind, the point of the text for you note takers is this. God guided human history to bring us the Savior. God guided human history to bring us the Savior. Question is, how does our text show us this? It's going to do so with the genealogy. Hence, genealogies are important. But as we continue our trek through the book of Genesis, I do want to say that this morning we come to an end of what is called primeval history. Now, I know that's a big word, and and if you remember, primeval history refers to the history before human records. See, everything in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is meant to fill in what we as humans otherwise could not know. For example, where did the universe come from? We weren't there when it came about, so we, we can't tell you unless the one who made it tells us. So where did the universe come from? God. Where did we come from? God. Why are things so messed up in this world? Because of you. No, because of sin. Okay? Why are humans so messed up? Because of sin. What about all those ancient legends and myths that every culture has? And they all share certain things in common, these fantastical things like giants and gods living on a mountain and food that could grant immortality and yet humans are blocked off from it. What about that kind of stuff? Well, it actually turns out that those are all pagan corruptions, pagan fantastical corruptions of things that actually did happen before the flood. So then you might be thinking, well, was there actually a flood? Because after all, every major culture in the world, and I mean every major culture in the world, has a flood legend. And yes, that all points to an original memory. Humanity got so wrapped up in sin that God wiped out the whole world with a flood, all except Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Okay, So the Bible sets all this stuff straight so we don't have to guess. Well, the next question would be, where did all the nations come from? Where did all the languages come from? Our last text answered that. The Tower of Babel explained that. Now, if you notice, all these questions are about things that existed before written history. By the time humans started leaving written records in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, there were already nations, languages, and legends. They already existed before we have these writings. So there's no way that humans on their own can know what happened before those records because nobody recorded them. That's why it's called primeval history. But God, the one who knows everything, he does know primeval history. And so he had Moses, through the doctrine of inspiration, he had him fill in those details in the first 11 chapters of Genesis so that we can know the answers to these questions that have plagued humanity from the beginning of our existence. Now, our text this morning, as I already said, is the last part of primeval history recorded in Genesis. After this text, the setting of the rest of Genesis is in the world that we know. It's in the world after humans started leaving written records. Now, if you've been counting, and I doubt people go to Sermon Audio and count, but if you have, this is the 35th sermon that I've done on Genesis so far. Rarely will someone preach 35 sermons on the first 11 chapters on primeval history. Usually, people try to get through it as fast as they can so that they could get to Abraham 
Once they get to Abraham, that's when they want to start going deep. But here's the thing. The foundation of our entire faith depends entirely on these first 11 chapters. It gives us our worldview. It tells us there is an infinite God that he made us and that he's in charge, not us. We're the creature. He's the creator. And because he's the creator and because he's infinite and because he's good, there are moral absolutes. There are morals that can never be changed. They are true because they're in accordance with God's nature. What that means is humans, as the creature, are not ultimate. We don't get to define reality. We don't get to define morals. So, for example, chapter 1 and 2 tells us that human sexuality is one man with one woman. Chapter 1 tells us that gender and biological sex are the exact same thing. The animal kingdom knows it. People with eyes know it. But our society these days actually fool themselves into thinking that humans can say that a square is a circle and somehow because we say it, it's true. That's not how it works, right? God is the one who ordains and says these things. Now, these are all hotbed issues today. See, when you look at Genesis chapter 2, the original design of everything was meant to last forever. No death, no curse, no sin. Death came as a result of sin. It came by one man the head of the human race, the first of the human race, Adam. And therefore, because of that, death and sin must also be overcome by a man, the head of a new human race, the first of that race, which is Jesus Christ. That's where this is all going. And so my point is simple. Everything that we Christians believe about reality, including the gospel itself, depends on what is written in these 11 chapters. And because of that, the world has attacked these 11 chapters for the last 300 years more than the rest of the Bible. What they've done is they've got people to compromise on this. And by getting people to compromise on these chapters, they eventually get a lot of people to abandon the faith. See, if the first 11 chapters did not really happen, if it's all just one big figurative myth, then you don't have to take it seriously. It's like Aesop's fables in that, in that case, just life lessons. What that means then is none of it ever happened, which means that marriage can be redefined because God never defined it. It means that gender could be redefined because God never defined it. It means that death is a natural part of life and it has nothing to do with sin, that we would have all died apart from sin. It also would mean that God is not actively and sovereignly upholding the universe Instead, the universe is like a machine that now that it's wound up and going, it doesn't need God. And in fact, he's unable to intervene if he exists at all. That's what happens when you abandon the first 11 chapters. Once you start accepting these ideas, the gospel's gone. Jesus Christ's death is no longer him taking the curse we deserve because of sin upon himself and dying the, paying the penalty because he would have died anyway, because death would be natural. Furthermore, if God can't intervene, the God-man couldn't come by a virgin birth. He couldn't be resurrected from the dead. The point is the gospel gets lost when you lose these 11 chapters. So clearly, these are some of the most important chapters of the entire Bible. Now, Christians will do one of three things with the problem of the fact that the world keeps attacking this. One, they will either ignore the problem and believe what the secularists say on this side of their brain, the universe is billions of years old, but then in a contradictory way on the other side of their brain say, yeah, but God made it in seven days. I don't know how to put these two ideas together. In fact, I'm not even going to let them talk to each other. 
I'm just going to hold this contradiction in my head and hope nobody ever asks me any questions. That's one way people try to deal with this. Second way people try to deal with this is they just give up. They embrace the secular ideas and they deconstruct their faith and eventually they walk away from it. That's the second option. Or the third option is to avoid the battle altogether and resort to a kind of fundamentalism where people build a bubble and cling to a naive form of homeschooler creationism. And what I mean by that is if you've ever homeschooled your kids and you look at the curriculum and the homeschool science, it's a joke. Okay, And so the people make this little bubble, I'll hide my kids from the world, I'll give them this really cheap you know, imitation creationism, and then what happens is when they go out, go out into the real world, it gets popped like an easy balloon, and then what then? Okay, And so none of those are the right answer, right? The first answer is inconsistent, the second one will destroy your own faith, and the third one will destroy the faith of your kids. Okay, So the right answer is to do what we've been doing for the last 35 sermons. Read the text closely. Explain it. Get it right. See what it means. And then one by one, destroy every dumb secular argument that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And I believe we've done that. That's why it took 35 sermons. That's why we spent so much time diving into history, physics, cosmology, biology, genetics, and chemistry. In so doing, we actually saw that the Bible actually does hold up to reality, and a young earth position actually explains the evidence far better than secular or religious old earth counterparts. In fact, we've drawn very much on the work of PhD scientists from Creation Ministry International. There's just so much evidence out there. And so because of this, we've ended up with a good understanding of the text, and we have a robust creationism by which we could stand up to both the Bible's critics and our own doubts in our heart. That's why I've done this the way that I've done this. That's why I've taken so long on these chapters. So if you're just coming to this series now, and you're real serious about knowing the truth about Genesis, go back and listen to the whole thing. You can find it at SovereignWay.org or SermonAudio.com, and you just type in our church's name. You could find all this stuff. But anyhow, with all that said, I want us to now look at our text. I just wanted to build up because this is the end of the primeval history. So we're going to look at the final part of this primeval history recorded in Genesis. Now, chances are, when I told you what the point of this text was, you looked back at the genealogy and you said, huh? This is just a bunch of names and years. What does this have to do with the Savior? Well, by the end, you'll know. And this will provide me a good opportunity to walk us all through how to read the Bible. Okay? So let's look at this genealogy. Let's see what it has for us. As we start to look at it, I know some of you are thinking we just did a genealogy in chapter 10, two sermons ago. That's true. So let me quickly tell you that this one's different. Okay? The one in chapter 10 was meant to tell us where the nations come from. And so that genealogy was wide, but it wasn't deep. It didn't go that many generations down. It just went really wide, okay, like a lot of different people groups. The genealogy we're talking about tonight, it doesn't go wide at all, but it goes deep. It goes many generations down. It is only concerned with Shem, not the rest of Noah's sons, just Shem. And specifically, it's only concerned with one son from Shem. And then one son of that son and one son of that son until you get to the end of this genealogy. That right away should tell you that this genealogy is like the one we saw in chapter 5. Because it does the same thing. 
In fact, its style is almost exactly the same. Just to get it out of the way, it's like this. X begat Y when X was blank amount of years old. And then X lived so many years after he begat Y. That's exactly what you find in chapter 5. That's exactly what you're finding here. The only difference was in chapter 5, Moses was nice and did the math for us and combined those two numbers and told us how old they were when they died. Chapter 11, he stopped, so you got to do the math yourself. But don't worry, I'll do it for us. It's just addition. Even I could do that. So anyhow, let's take a look. In verse 10, it begins by saying, these are the family records of Shem. Now, remember, we saw from chapter 10 that Shem is the father of all the Semitic people in the world, and that would include Israel, okay? And so that's just reminding you of what we already learned about him. Now, right here, what it's telling us is this is the next Toledot in Genesis, okay? If you remember, Moses arranged the book of Genesis into 11 Toledotes. And you might be like, what? And I know I've said it a million times, but I'll say it again. A Toledot is just the Hebrew word for generations or records. Notice the text. These are the family records of Shem. Or some translations, these are the generations of Shem. 11 times in Genesis, it will say these are the generations of blank. Okay? Or these are the family records of blank. And each time it does that, it's starting a new section of the book, okay? And then everything that comes after that belongs to that section until you see these are the generations of the next person, okay? So just by way of review, the first one was the generations of the heavens and the earth. That was chapters 2 and 3. Then the next one was the generations of Adam, chapters 4 through 6. Then we had the generations of Noah, chapters 6 through 9. Then we had the generations of Noah's sons in chapter 10. And that went all the way up until the verse before this verse, okay? Because the Tower of Babel is included in that Toledot or Toledot. Okay, it's important to understand that this is how Moses arranged Genesis for a few reasons. But one stands out above all the rest. The people who compromise on the book of Genesis, the people who claim that the first 11 chapters are to be taken not as real history, then claim Starting in chapter 12, you should take it as real history. That from Abraham on is real history. Everything before is not. And what I'm telling you is the author who wrote this arranged the text to where you cannot do that. Abraham is just the next Toledot, right? You were supposed to treat all the previous ones like you treat Abraham and the ones after. The author's telling you if Abraham's is real, then these five that we've looked at before Abraham are also real. So what I'm saying is people just do silly things with this text because they're intimidated by the secularists, and you don't have to be. You don't have to be intimidated. Anyway, no more needs to be said about the Toledot aspect of this. This is simply the next section, and it's a short section. We're actually going to start and finish this one today, and it serves only one purpose, but I already told you what that purpose is, and I'll come back to it in the end. So let's continue the text. And the rest of verse 10 and all of verse 11, it tells us this. Moses writes, Shem lived 100 years and fathered a parchshad two years after the flood. And after he followed a parchshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So let's break this down really quickly. Shem was 100 years old when he had this child. It tells us he had him two years after the flood. 
That means Shem was 98 when the flood happened. And just for Bible nerd trivia, just in case you ever end up on who wants to be a millionaire, chapter 5 told us that the flood began... So no, chapter 5 told us that, that Noah started having kids 100 years before the flood, right? So if Shem was 98 when the flood started, one of those kids was born before Shem. And it can't be Ham, because chapter 9 said Ham is the youngest. That means Shem's the middle child. They always got problems. No, anyway, just kidding. And so that would mean Japheth is the oldest. What are you going to do with that information? Don't know, just thought I'd share it. Anyhow, the text is telling us, it's two years after the flood, Shem gives birth to a parshad. Now, if you go back to chapter 10, this guy had four brothers, but chapter 11's not even dealing with them. It's not even mentioning them. It's only concerned with this guy, okay? And so after Shem begets this guy, it then tells us Shem lives 500 more years, which means he made it to 600 years old. Now, that's quite a bit less than Noah, over 300 years less than Noah. And it's less than most of the other guys who died before the flood. Okay, Some guys only made it to their 700s, but for the most part, Shem is, is, is dying before them. Why? Why did he only make it to 600? There's a lot of speculative answers. I'm not going to get into those. Okay, But here's one thing that is cool, and I'm going to bring back up when we get to Genesis 14. If you take these years seriously, then Shem was still alive for the entire life of Abraham. In fact, he would have outlived Abraham by about two years. Now, there is somebody that Abraham's going to run into in Genesis chapter 14 that seems to know who the true God is and blesses Abraham. I have theories about who that man might be, and I think I just gave it away. But anyhow, so I'll bring that back up when we get to Genesis 14. But think about it this way. Okay, this provides a possible chain of reliable oral tradition. See, Shem was an eyewitness of the pre-flood world, and he was an eyewitness of the flood, and he lived throughout the whole life of Abraham. If he told Abraham what it was like before the flood and what the flood was like, and Abraham told Isaac, and Isaac told Jacob, and Jacob told his 12 sons, and Israel passed this on until Moses, then it makes sense why Moses, out of everybody in the world, would have the right story, okay? And that God would then inspire him to write it down without error, okay? And I know in America, we're like, you can't trust oral tradition. That's because we're not an oral culture. That's why the telephone game doesn't work here. But anthropologists who study oral cultures have already proven that they could pass on an oral tradition without any change for hundreds of years because that's how they memorize things. That's not us. We got smartphones. We can't remember anything, but they can. Okay, so again, we have a chain of eyewitness oral tradition here. Anyhow, Shem dies at 600. Now it moves on to his son. His son is the first generation born after the flood. Okay, first one's born after the flood. And notice, at the end of each person, it's going to say other sons and daughters. It's not going to name them. It's not going to tell us anything about them. That lets us know there's a lot more people groups in the world that's mentioned than is mentioned here. But the point of this text is only these people. Okay? Now look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Aparshad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Aparshad lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So what this is telling us is 35 years old, he has this son, Shelah, and he lives 403 years after that 
which puts his death at 438 years. Now, I want you to notice, this is the first generation after the flood. How long is he living in comparison to the people born before the flood? Half. People before the flood were eight to 900 years old. This guy's in the 400s. And the people after him will be in the 400s. So notice, this drop is significant for the first generation after the flood. They live half as long. Why? Well, I've given that answer before. And I'll do so again, but I'm going to wait till verses 18 and 19, okay? For now, I just want you to, in your head, notice there's a big decrease of this first generation after the flood. There's a different issue that I want to address here, okay? Most of you would have never noticed this, but I feel like whenever we quote a text or read through a text, we also want to look at other Bible verses that appeal back to this text. And the Gospel of Luke does, in chapter 3. And there's a little problem when you compare them, so I I want to work that out. If you look at Luke chapter 3, verses 34 through 36, it's giving the genealogy of Christ backward, okay, starting with Christ and going backward up to Adam. And at this part, it says this, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Aparkshad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech. Now, did you notice that like a Where's Waldo figure inserted himself into this genealogy that's not in Genesis? Okay, instead of Shelah being the son of Aparkshad, as our text says, it says a guy named Canaan is. And then Canaan, it says, is the one who fathered Shelah. What's going on here? Do we have a contradiction? Because if we do, that'd be a problem. And look, you don't want to be one of those bubble people that just hides from this. Take it on. See what's going on here. And I'll tell you what's going on here, right? The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. But a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, since everybody was speaking Greek, they translated it into Greek. That's called the Septuagint, right? The early Septuagints did not have Canaan. But somewhere along the line, after the New Testament times, a copyist added Canaan to it, okay? And then what happened is a copyist of the Gospel of Luke was right in this genealogy, and he has the Septuagint next to him, and he looks, and the copy he had had this extra name. So he makes the choice to add the extra name as well. And then what happened is the majority of manuscripts of Luke afterwards had this added name. But just to let you know, the earliest manuscripts of Luke we have do not have that name. The earliest Septuagints we have don't have that name. Josephus, the ancient Jewish writer, when he writes of the genealogy, there's no Canaan. An early Christian writer, Julius Africanus, when he writes of this genealogy, there's no Canaan. That lets us know this accidentally got added later, okay? And what seems to happen, and it's logical, if you go back to the genealogy in chapter 5, there is a guy named Canaan, and he's in the third spot. Where did this Canaan get put? And the third spot. Somewhere along the line, that copyist confused chapter 5 with chapter 11 and inserted this guy where he didn't belong. So let's just call him fake Canaan. You're not going to meet him in heaven is all I'm saying when you're like, where is he? I want to find him. Why would you mess up? He's not there. Okay? He's not real. Okay? Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm glad that you cleared that up for us, but this causes some real problems in my mind because we claim that this is the word of God. And it's without error. And yet, I just told you that a fake dude got inserted into a genealogy. So let me clear something up for us, okay? The doctrine of inerrancy 
is that the original documents, the original autographs written by the apostles and the prophets, those are without error. We do not believe that the copies are without error. Okay, copyists can make mistakes like one did. It's the originals that are without error. What we have are copies. Now, you might be saying, well, then, therefore, we can't trust it. Nay, 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 not so fast. Okay, God has left us thousands of manuscripts that span many centuries. There is no other ancient text in the world where we have all this manuscript evidence. If you're going to hate on the Bible, let me tell you this. You better hate on all of ancient history. Because Julius Caesar's wars, you know how, how many manuscripts we have of that? Not a lot. And they were, the oldest one we have is a thousand years after the fact. Okay, when it comes to the Bible, we got thousands of manuscripts, and they go back very early. For example, when it comes to the Gospel of John, we have a single manuscript that dates to just 20 years after it was written. No other ancient source even comes close. Okay, So... That being said, we have these thousands of manuscripts and people compare them. There's a whole field of expertise called textual criticism. These guys are PhD brains like you couldn't imagine. They know a whole bunch about language, a whole bunch about history, and all they do is compare these manuscripts. And it's a field filled with both believers and unbelievers, expert linguists, expert historians, And they tend to agree that after they compare all the manuscripts, when you compare different manuscripts, you're able to figure out what's in the original. And they say what we have is 99.7% of what was in the original. So you can trust your Bible. Now, you might be saying, what about that 0.03%? First half, 0.03% is small, very small. And these same textual critics looked at that 0.03%, and you know what they found? Not a single one of them affects anything important in the Bible. No doctrines of the faith. In fact, it ends up being stuff like this. A guy was accidentally put in a genealogy. That changes absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. So the point is what we have are thousands of manuscripts that are combined to where the scholars all agree that we've got 99.7% of what's in the original, which is without error, and then that 0.03% never covers anything significant. It's dumb little things like this. And we got so many manuscripts, we're able to identify this and tell you. I was able to tell you exactly how this happened. Okay? That's because God left us all the evidence for that. So hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully you realize there was no Canaan. Okay? Sorry if you were rooting for him. Um, And apparently the Jews who uh, were the keepers of the Hebrew manuscripts, they knew that, and that's why they kept them out. And that's why he's not in our translation, because this is translated from the original Hebrew. It means the Jews back then knew what was floating around in the later Greek ones weren't right. Okay? So anyhow, if anything you learn from this, Aparkshad was the father of Shelah, not Canaan. There you go. Anyway, so let's move on. I know that seemed like a very tiny detail to, to strain, but I think it's important just so that we understand how reliable the text is and how God has given us the ability to spot out those 0.03%. Anyhow, next, in verses 14 and 15, Moses writes this. He says, Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Okay, it's just like the other ones. In this case, he lived a total of 433 years. Again, that's half of the pre-flood timelines or lifespans. 
And it tells us, again, he had other sons and daughters, but the focus is on Eber. Why Eber? Eber is important for two important reasons. First, his name is where the word Hebrew comes from, okay? The Israelite people get their name from Eber. His name gets transferred to them. The Jews are called the Hebrew people because of this guy. How did that happen? I don't know. Eber had a lot more descendants. In fact, the entire Arabian Peninsula is descended from him through his son, Joktan. So why only the Jews are called Hebrew? Don't know. What I can tell you is in Genesis 14, 13 is the first time where somebody's called a Hebrew. It says Abram, the Hebrew. Now, if you want my theory, which you probably don't, I'm going to tell you anyway, here it is. If you look at the lifespans of Eber, like how long he lived, he also lived for most of Abraham's life. So there's a chance Abraham knew Eber, and Eber really liked him and said, that's my great, great, great grand boy. I love him. And he's like, okay, well, then he's Abraham the Eber. You know, and henceforth, he was called Abraham the Hebrew, and then all of his descendants, a.k.a. Israel, was called the Hebrews. That's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> I don't know if it's right, but Eber's important because the Jewish people are named after him. Second reason he's important is he is the last guy to live into his 400s. Something changes after him. So let's continue to look at it. Verses 16 and 17, it says, Eber lived 34 years and he fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So he holds the record after the flood, other than Shem, but he holds the record for those born after the flood. 464 years, okay? But now the text moves to his son Peleg and something changes. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Can somebody tell me what, what just happened there? What, what's different? Nobody wants to shout it out? 200 years instead of 400, huh? Dropped in half. Dropped in half out of the blue. He only made it to 239 years, a, a little whippersnapper by the time he died in comparison to his father's. And everyone after him starts gradually decreasing. So what caused the drop in the lifespans? Well, this is, I told you I was going to come back to this. If we take the Bible as what it is, the word of God, then these little details matter. And normally we just read right past them and never think about them again. We gloss over it, but we shouldn't. We have to ask, what do we know about Peleg? What did chapter 10 tell us about him? Peleg's name means to divide. Why? Because the earth was divided in the days of Peleg, in his lifetime. This brings us back to the events of chapter 10 and uh, chapter 11, specifically verses 1 through 10. The Tower of Babel, that is when God divided the earth. See, you had all these distinct people groups, right? But they were all one, in one place, speaking one language. And they rebelled against God, and so he punishes them by scattering them into individual groups far apart from each other, and he confused them with many languages. So now, each people group was only a handful of people, right? Handful of people. They could only understand each other because it's going to take a while for people to learn languages and for there to be linguistic uh, borrowing and stuff like that. And so what that means is for a number of generations, because of distance and language, you're only going to marry within your own kind, okay? You're only going to marry within that small little group, which reduces the genetic diversity in each group exponentially. 
This is what accounts for the distinct looks of all the different people groups because they were small and they could only marry within each other. And it also accounts for the shorter lifespans. This is simple genetics. I talked about this back in chapter four. Every time procreation happens, there is an opportunity because of the fall. There's an opportunity for mutations to form in the genetic code of a person and then to be passed on to the offspring. And the more generations that you have, the more mutations that you have because all the old ones get passed on and then the new ones get added to it. Now, mutations, it's not like X-Men. You don't get powers from it, okay? Mutations are harmful. They are usually harmful or they're benign, but in most cases, they're harmful. This is a very well-understood concept in the field of genetics called genetic entropy. Eventually, you end up with so many mutations accumulated that lifespans just plummet. Diseases increase and all that kind of stuff. Genetic entropy, right? So here's the way it works. You get your DNA from two parents. And if they're not relatives of each other, hopefully, right? If they're not relatives of each other, then it makes it very unlikely for both of your parents to have the same mutation, okay? So let's say you, get, you inherit a mutation in your genes from your father, but in the parallel gene from your mother, there's not that mutation. Her gene will cover that, and that mutation's not going to affect you. You'll pass it on to your kids, but again, it's benign. Now, if your mother had the exact same mutation on the same parallel line, then this one's going to mess you up, right? And so the thing is, that's why you don't marry your relatives, okay? That's just, just one thing to, to keep in mind there, because then you have the genetic diversity, and you're not, both partners aren't going to have the same mutations on the same uh, lines of the genome, okay? Now, remember, Adam being created from the dust of the ground was a genetically perfect human with no mutations. And we know that his kids had to marry their siblings by default. And even if you believe in evolution foolishly because the evidence is lacking, even they believe the first humans all had to commit incest, right? And so, but in our worldview, there's a reason they didn't die right away because there were no mutations yet, okay? But with each new generation, there's new mutations, but there were few mutations early on. And hence, people would live 900 years. Then the world gets really populated. And even though the mutations have multiplied, again, there was so much genetic diversity, it wasn't affecting people too much, thus the long lifespans. Then you get the flood. And what happens with the flood? All of humanity now bottlenecks into eight people. All that genetic diversity lost, and you only got eight people, each with probably a good amount of mutations at this point. And by the way, just before I continue, this is exactly what the Human Genome Project demonstrated a few years back. This surprised the geneticists. They expected this diversity the whole time, and then looking back, counting backward through the human genome, they said, wait a second, 4,500 years ago, all the diversity seemed to disappear and it bottlenecked, and all subsequent genetics come from a tiny handful of people. 4,500 years ago, which is the exact timeline of when the Bible said the flood would have happened. Okay, And so all that worldwide diversity gets wiped out. All you have left is Noah's family. And so for those first few generations after Noah, everybody's marrying their cousin. You can't get around it, right? And so now you have a lot more shared mutations and a lot more opportunity for you and your wife to have one or two on the same lines. And then that passes on to little Johnny, okay? And then think about it. It just so happens the very first generation after the flood, lives half as long as the people before the flood. Coincidence? 
I think not. Well, now think about it again. Why am I coming to this specifically at verses 18 and 19? You start to have the world repopulating after Noah. Yeah, they started out marrying cousins, but eventually they don't need to marry cousins anymore. Okay, you get these people groups. They're living 400-year lifespans for a while. And then God's going to bottleneck them again with the Tower of Babel. Now you've got hundreds of people groups. And they came, there's probably only between twenty to 40,000 people at the Tower of Babel when we do the math. And if God's going to make hundreds of nations out of 20,000 people and scatter them, then that means those nations were only a couple dozen people each. And they have to all intermarry within themselves. And guess what? They have a lot more genetic conformity to each other. And then it just so happens that the first generation after the Tower of Babel, lifespans cut in half again. It is no coincidence that in the biblical narrative, the lifespans happen to drop the first generation after each bottlenecking. It is not coincidence. So every detail of the text matters. And in each case, again, in each case where you have this happen, lifespans cut in half. These tiny little details probably were not caught by the ancient believers because they didn't even know about genetics. But... When you look at the current field of genetics and you look at the history of genetics that we're now finding through that human genome project and then you compare it to what we see here, very interesting how the dates line up. Just saying, okay? Now, Bible's word of God, that's what makes sense out of this. Now let's get back to the text. We should expect everybody else on this list to have shorter lifespans. Peleg was not an anomaly. This is the new normal. So let's continue. In verses 20 and 21, it says, Reu lived 32 years and fathered Serug. After he fathered Serug, Reu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So he lived as long as his pops did, 239 years. But then the next generation is going to start dropping. Look at verses 22 and 23. Moses writes this. He says, Serug lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So he only made it to 230 years, a little less than his dad. But then with his son, it's going to drop pretty hard. The, the effect of the bottlenecking and all that marrying within each uh, distinct ethnic group, as the groups grow, again, you still only have a little bit of genetic diversity there. And so here's what it says. It says in verses 24 and 25, it says, Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah, and he fathered, after he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. He only made it to 148 years, okay? And with Abraham, he'll go a little past that. Same with Isaac. But by the time you get to King David, it seems to be 70 years. Now, what's up by the time of King David, and why hasn't it dropped any lower than that? By the time you get to King David, even before King David, you end up now with each nation being bilingual, trilingual, empires are cross-mingling, intermarriage is now a thing again. And so there's genetic diversity and it leveled off there. Again, the timing of the text just happens to match the timing of the ages and, and, and the timing of what we see in global genetics. So I believe that uh, you know old school creationists in those little bubble homeschool curriculums you know, posited this canopy theory, which is just a fantasy. It really comes down to just genetics. That explains everything that we're seeing. The modern, current theories of genetics and, and what we could find actually match with what we find in the text and explain uh, the lifespans, okay? Now, I know we're going through these names and these lifespans, 
And for some of you, it's interesting food for thought. Some of you are like, dude, he needs to shut up. Uh, But here's the thing. Even if you find this all interesting, none of that's the main point. It's all subsidiary points, okay? The actual point is found in the final verse of our Toledot, verse 26. It says, Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, based on what that says, what do you think this was all about? Who's the big name there that matters? Abram. Thank you, sir. Okay, so what was the point of the genealogy to get us to Abram, or as God renames him later, Abraham? As a people group, who does 90% of the Old Testament deal with? Israel. Who does Israel where does Israel come from? Abraham. Okay? So, again, Israel, we get to Abraham. Most of the Old Testament deals with Israel. Israel comes from Abraham. That's why this genealogy is here. Moses is making the connection to the people who've just come out of Egypt. Where do we come from? Well, we come from Jacob. Where does he come from? Isaac. Okay, where does he come from? Abraham. Who's he? All right, well, we got to go back in the primeval history then. That's what this is all about in a secondary sense. But it's even more than that. See, at the beginning, I said that the point of the text is actually, it's not just about Israel. It's that God guided human history to bring us the Savior. Jesus Christ is who it's all about. I then said that the way the text shows us this is with the genealogy. If you go back to my sermon on Genesis chapter 5, it was the exact same point too. I used, I ripped myself off. I plagiarized myself. I used the exact same main point because it is. It is. Okay? Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 are showing the exact same thing. Both focus on one kid for each guy. Both tell us they had many other sons and daughters, but they're not named because they're not important for this point. And then each genealogy, if you notice, how does the one in chapter 5 end? The last guy, it lists three sons. Ham, or Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in this one right now, how does it end? The last guy has three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, it's following the same exact pattern, okay? And so you are supposed to notice this continuity. You're supposed to notice also that Shem is at the end of the genealogy in chapter 5, but the beginning of the genealogy in chapter 11. Both have the exact same structure, both end the same way, and both have Shem as a pivot point. What does that tell you? It tells you that these two genealogies are supposed to be read together. They display a total continuity. The first one got us from Adam, the very first man, all the way to Shem. The second one gets us all the way from Shem to Abraham. Together, if you put them together, they get us from Adam to Abraham. So, When you are reading scripture like this and you come across a genealogy like this, rather than get mad that you can't pronounce the names and you can't say your het right because I was struggling with it, need more water, rather than getting mad over that, ask yourself, what is this text telling me? Why is this genealogy here? Why is it telling me how long they lived and so on? Now, you might be saying, Pastor, I don't know how to answer those questions. I didn't go to school for this. Okay, maybe, fair enough, but let me tell you something that'll help. The way you figure this out and ask this question is you ask another question, what would be missing without this text? Now, how do you figure that out? Well, skip the text, read the last text, skip this one and start on the next one, and you will quickly see what's missing. If you end at the Tower of Babel 
and then you jump to chapter 12, you are going to be lost. You're going to be like, with no warning, who's Abram? Why is God calling him? God's actually talking to this guy. What's going on here? Why is he calling them in a special way? Who is he? Where did he come from? Last thing I read is there was a flood. Humanity spread, and then God scattered them and changed their languages. And now there's this guy, Abram, no explanation. He's just being thrown on the pages, and I'm supposed to know who he is and why he's being called and why this is important. See, that tells you the reason for this genealogy. It gets us to Abraham. That way, when you read chapter 12 and we're in the next Toledo, it makes sense, okay? The flood ended, humans repopulated, God spread them out, confused their languages. This continues for generations. And since God used a genealogy in chapter 5 to show us how we get from Adam to the flood, he's now doing it again to show us how we get from the flood to the next big thing. And the next big thing is Abraham. So at the end of the day, This genealogy is not about these names necessarily or how long they lived. That's all important, okay? It's important information because it communicates that this is real history and that there's a real lineage that matters and we're supposed to be paying attention to that lineage, okay? Now, back in chapter 5, I called this the royal lineage. Some people call it the seed lineage or the the line of the seed, okay, which is just as good. Why? Because it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve just fell into sin. God judged them. And then he pronounced judgment on the serpent. He gives a ray of hope. He pronounced judgment on the serpent and Satan who possessed the serpent. And here's what he says. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and he will strike your heel. Now, other translations say the seed of the woman, between your seed and her seed and Satan, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. People call this the first gospel for a reason. See, God at the very beginning of the curse still opens up with the promise of hope. A seed is coming. An offspring is coming. A seed of the woman. And by the way, that implies a miraculous conception because women don't have the seed. And they knew that in the scripture. In fact, Genesis will tell us that men have the seed. Okay, but it's saying the seed of the woman, which right away was a mysterious question mark. What does that mean? And then a couple thousand years later, a savior is born of a virgin. You could put it all together. Okay. But what we're being told is that this human will crush the head of Satan. And then in that same chapter, God covers their sin with a sacrifice in the garden, also showing what the seed of the woman will one day do. <coughs> he, will solve, he will solve the sin problem. He will beat back the curse of death, and this person will be like any other. Now, the promise was taken to heart by Eve. Because when I was preaching through chapter 4, I told you that she thought Cain was the one. In fact, our English translations mess it up. In the Hebrew, she says, I've had a child, the Lord. She thought Cain was the one. Turns out, he disappointed her. And so the next child, Abel, you know what that means in Hebrew? Worthless. Vanity. She was disillusioned. Imagine if your mom named you useless or worthless. Well, that's what she did to Abel. And then the poor guy gets murdered. But anyhow... um, You know, the thing is, there was the expectation that this one would come, okay? Cain wasn't the one, Abel wasn't the one, Seth was a man of God, but he wasn't the one. But from Seth, all of a sudden, the Bible starts recording a lineage for us. 
And that's what chapter 5 is all about. You have from Adam to Seth, and it goes all the way to Shem. And it leaves out everyone else who's not part of that lineage. And then it moves on to other things, the flood and the, the so forth. And then our text this evening picks right back up where that one ended and does the exact same thing. Leaves everyone else out and gets us from Shem to Abraham. Okay? Now, you might be thinking, well, is this going to stop with Abraham? Well, in chapter 5, did it stop with Shem? It took a little break, but then it picked back up. Okay? So you could assume it will stop with Abraham here. It's going to take a break, but it's going to pick back up. You know what's going to happen? It's going to bring us from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to Judah. And by the end of this book of Genesis, it's going to tell us that Judah will be the king. The, the king will come from Judah. So apparently a king from this nation of Israel will come from Judah. Then it takes a big break, talks about slavery, brings this exodus, brings the conquest of the land. You don't hear anything more about this. Oh, and by the way, Genesis ends also telling us with Judah had a son named Perez. Okay, then it takes a big break. No more major genealogies, okay, that relate to this. No royal genealogy. And then you get to Ruth, which Pastor Josh preached through. And how did it end? Starts right back with Perez. And it gets us from Perez to David. And then God chooses David as the king of Israel from the tribe of Judah and tells David, I will raise up one of your descendants and he will sit on the throne forever. That lets us know that this descendant's different. If he's going to live, if he's going to rule forever, he must live forever. Furthermore, the prophets then start telling us about this guy. Isaiah 53 tells us he will die for sinners and be resurrected. They tell us that, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth and, and that this king will rule all the nations in harmony and the evil and the wicked will be judged. It tells us the curse will be beat back forever. No more sin, no more death. And that seed that it's telling us about from David is the, king of, is the seed of the woman. Okay, all these genealogies are leading to that. Ours this evening is just one leg of that, one segment of that. So the Bible is moving us towards that Savior. And then guess what? You get all these little segments in the Old Testament. And if you think these things aren't important, let me ask you, how does the New Testament begin? What does it begin with? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, an account, that's the Greek way of toledot, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, brings us right back to it. It completes the genealogy. This might go over our head, but any ancient Jewish reader would have looked at this statement and saw it exactly for what it is. It is an announcement that the genealogy has now been completed. The last part of it has been put in. The Savior has come. His name is Yeshua HaMashiach ben David ben Abraham. And if we then add Luke's genealogy, not only is he son of David, son of Abraham, he is son of Adam, son of God. That is who this is. That is where this is all leading us. Okay? So our genealogy is all about that. This is why I said the point of the text is that God guided human history to bring us the Savior. And our text shows us this with the genealogy. So please, for the love of our Lord, do not underestimate the importance of biblical genealogies. Now, it is my hope that in pointing this out to you, you see why it is so important to read each part of the Bible with the whole thing in mind, okay? Because each part of the Bible makes up the whole. But when the part is confusing, ask yourself, well, what does this contribute to the whole? And, and, and then what does the whole tell me about this part? 
See, thinking scripturally goes in both directions. You have to think from the part to the whole, but you also have to think from the whole to the part. Because God inspired every single word, looking at the Bible this way works. It won't work if you look at Moby Dick this way. It won't work if you look at the, um, the, the collection of uh, the greatest West, oh, what do they call it? The collection of the greatest Western writers or something like that. They took um, all the greats from like Plato all the way up to Nietzsche and put them in an anthology. You try understanding the parts and seeing if there's a whole, there's not. But what do you have with the Bible? You have 66 books written by 45 authors over 1,400 years in three different languages on three different continents. Most of these guys didn't know each other. They didn't even know what they were writing. The Lord just had them write this. And then it's all put together in a single anthology, and it's got a single story, single meta narrative without contradiction that all goes in one direction. You can't do that with a human work. You can only do that with a divine work. That is why we know this is true. Not only does it get genetics right, but there's so many other things in this book that only make sense because God inspired it. That's why you could look at the part to understand the whole and look at the whole to understand the part. Now, one final thing I want to bring up because a lot of people come, they want to hear the word of God, but they also want to be told what to do because they want to please God. So you might be saying, what is this text commanding me? It's a narrative. It's not telling you to live 434 years. Okay? It's not telling you to do anything. Okay? There was no event from here where you could learn what righteousness looks like and what wickedness looks like and, and so that you could then go imitate the righteous. It was just a genealogy. So the question is, what is the application to this from a genealogy? Well, who's in control of this genealogy? Who's bringing it to fruition? God. And where does this genealogy lead us? To Jesus. And what does Jesus bring for us? Salvation. So, really, at the end of the day, the application is to understand that your salvation has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It's based on God's promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. He promised it. He will fulfill it. It's up to him to carry it out, not you. And the text shows you that he did carry it out. He carried it out faithfully. So the question, the application then is, now that you've seen this, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you believe every word that he has spoken in the Bible? Are you confident that this word is the truth? Do you believe that God controls history and brought us the Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you trust that Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law and gives the credit of that to everyone who trusts Jesus by faith? Do you believe that? That he came and he fulfilled that? And do you believe that God placed the punishment of us on him? That he was crushed for our iniquity? That he was bruised for our transgressions? That by his stripes we are healed? Do you believe that? Do you trust it? And if so, do you then believe he paid your debt and you are free indeed? That is what this is all about. Trust the one who controls history. Trust the one in charge of salvation because if you've believed on him, He's taking care of it all. Do you believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? This text should lead us to that. Trust and be confident in God. That is the application. And that trust and confidence in God should then lead to greater obedience in all of our lives. See, if you walk away with that tonight, then you got the point. 
And if you walk away from the last 35 sermons with greater confidence in the book of Genesis, then praise God, because that's why I preached through these 11 chapters so slowly. And my original plan was once I was done with that, I was going to move on to something else in the Old Testament, because I've been in Genesis for 35 sermons. But then I thought about it. The foundational part of Scripture is the Torah, the first five books. Christians know very little about it. So I thought, all right, you know what? I need to continue and preach through the rest of Genesis and all the way through Deuteronomy. Now, Leslie calculated how long it took me to do this and then sent me a picture and said I'd be 74 years old by the time I finish. But I can assure you, and she sent a picture of an old guy and everything, but I I can assure you that once we get past the primeval stuff, I'll be able to take sometimes two, three chapters at a time. So I calculate seven years, not 74. So we we will finish all of this, okay? But anyhow, I look forward to then picking up with Abraham next time, because that's where this was all leading us, so it could get us to Christ. In the meantime, may we all trust God with all of our heart, and may we live for him. And if there's any unbeliever here, listen, I've already made it clear that, that God's in control of history. This word holds up. Any lie put out by humanity is on flimsy air. Epistemologically, it cannot be justified. And if you don't know what epistemology is, you could come talk to me. Okay, Or you could just go to the smallest kid in your family and start talking to him. And, and once he starts asking why, you say something, why? And then you're like, well, because of this, why? Well, because of that, why? After the third why, you can't answer anymore because you can't justify a single thing you believe because you're a finite human with a three-pound brain and you have very limited knowledge. Okay, And so to trust man rather than the infinite God is just playing up tomfoolery. Okay, And we don't want you to go to hell. So here's the thing. God controls history. He sent a Savior to die for sinners who rose on the third day. If you trust that Savior, if you believe on him, all your sins are forgiven, and you turn away from those sins, and you belong to him at that point, and you will have eternal life. So we invite you to receive Jesus as Lord if you have not. And if you already have, well, then keep walking in him. If you haven't, come to him today. Otherwise... Judgment's awaiting you. And here's the thing. As we sing, okay, amazing grace, and our sins are gone, our chains are gone, we've been set free, right? If you believe on Jesus, whatever sin has a hold of you that has made you a slave, he will break those chains, okay? So don't let your sin be the thing that holds you back from the free and wonderful gift of our Savior. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.